Welcome to HEP Talks. I'm Luke Kember here with Margaret Mulholland, SEN and Inclusion Specialist for the Association of School and College Leaders. Margaret, thank you for rejoining us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So we're coming back today to talk about the uh, SEND Improvement Plan, which is kind of the um, next step from the SEND and AP Green Paper, which is also following on from the the SEND Review, which uh, started a few years earlier, um, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes, that's right. So it's really three years in the in the offing. Um, so the improvement plan was really something we had pushed for, we were excited for, and, and now we have it. And we've had it for, um, well, for a couple of months now. And I think it's starting to make more sense to us. So it'd be useful to talk it through today in, in terms of um, what we're expecting. Yeah, great. So I think we'll we'll start maybe... Well, we can kind of do it however you want. We can either go through kind of chapter by chapter or um, just maybe pull out some some key points. I guess for the overall structure, we'll, we'll start more summary based and then we can later get into your impressions on how this actually might um, have an effect. But I think at least one of the, the key takeaways, and maybe I'm jumping ahead here too much, but uh, the ones that you know I picked up on from the news reports were that... Uh, not too much is going to change simply based on this improvement plan right now. Yeah. So uh, I think you're absolutely right, Luke. I mean, I think what we can say about this is that it does some good things in that it reiterates very strongly what the goals are. And it really commits to a sentiment, and I say that deliberately, a sentiment of inclusivity which I think is very positive. Um, it recognizes the complexity of the system. So we haven't lost any of those things from the send review findings from the green paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, as you say, what it what it fails to do is instigate action quickly. And there is a sense of urgency in the system. The evidence showed us that. So we were surprised by this very sort of um, patchy roadmap that's been articulated here. I think there are some, you know, as I say, some good themes. So the each ch- chapter looks at different things, and that you know, it's one hundred and one pages. So it's not it's not a skimpy document. However, what that what you actually walk away with once you've read it is is, is pretty thin. I think because we're already familiar with what's been articulated through the green paper but the chapters look at um, the national standard what they how they will improve accountability put an emphasis in chapter three on transitions and preparation for adulthood looks at a skilled workforce and excellent leadership Um, so that's very much about the capacity building in the system um, and we'll talk about that today. You know, what, what do we need to do to enable the teacher workforce um, the support staff workforce? How do we enable um, schools to really meet the needs of young people? Um, strengthened accountabilities. Uh, again, interestingly, that they didn't put them with the national standards. 
and then financial sustainability of the system, so a, a chapter on funding. So those are the sort of lever areas. I think for me, what's what surprised me was that whilst the goals were clear, the strategies that they articulate in the improvement plan don't appear sufficient to deliver on the theory of change that was articulated in the green paper. And I think that theory of change was, was the right one. Um, but how is this in its entirety of what we've learned so far going to really um, drive those levers? So the theory of change, if you remember, had four particular foundations to it. Improving mainstream provision and upskilling the workforce, providing access to specialist provision, so building the capacity of special schools, APs, therapists, so being able to draw on specialists effectively in the system, which at the moment we know has huge gaps and overcrowding um, of, of special schools and underfunding of APs greater consistency on how pupils are identified. So better identification at the moment, we know that primary, which primary school you went to is probably the best indicator of whether or not you'll end up with an EHCP. So we wanted greater quality around that identification process. And then strengthened accountability to ensure that all partners have clear roles and responsibilities. So those are the four areas I still believe they're the right four. So there's, you know, there's positives in here. But as I say, I'm not sure that the strategies articulated in what's termed the roadmap, which you can link into as a document that summarizes all the actions of the 101 pages of the improvement plan. I'm not sure that roadmap gives you something that's fluent and, and underpinned with um actions that really will deliver against the ambition so it's worth looking at the roadmap um really to get that picture I think because I think it's you know if you looked at for example worth workforce development in reality what you see uh, is you know strengthening of the core content framework the HCP uh, the uh, ECF the early career framework and the MPQs mm. now for me, that's not enough. You know, that that's that's something that, you know, in the time that we've been reviewing the SEND, we should have been putting those elements in. They should have been a given in strengthening the system. And then we should have been thinking, on what else do we need to really deepen knowledge and expertise? They are the important backbone if you like the the skeleton um so i agree that they should be stronger they're absolutely desperately in need of of more sense specific and inclusion specific um into development mm -hmm. but that to me is it you know that's not enough and and i don't think there was enough new in there or enough enrichment that, that really helped us to see uh, what we needed. Yeah. And I was just saying to you, Luke, earlier that, um, you know, for me, I think this, the most salient point is that what we received 
was a genuine improvement plan. And, and if we understand what an improvement plan is, it is a high level strategy document with visions, goals, objectives for improving the system. And it gives you some, you know, if you were looking at that internationally, any improvement plan would give you some new initiatives, new funding streams, maybe some more detail on targeted interventions, but it's essentially an overview. Hmm. It doesn't it doesn't pretend to be anything else. And that is what we've got. So we've got what it says on the tin, an improvement plan. What we asked for was an implementation plan. Okay, okay. So what you're saying then is that maybe we shouldn't all be incredibly surprised that this didn't include all the, you know, changes in legislation or, you know, more, let's say, actionable items, because mm. this is kind of an overarching plan. Um, and so we can hopefully expect that later. Do we have any <laughs> idea if, so, so I guess this, maybe we are jumping ahead again, but um, I guess this kind of leads to that question, which is, is this the current government just kind of putting that off until later? Um, or do you see some, I don't know, real steps being taken, um, but just slowly and in the, you know, the correct way to implement these things down the line? I mean, I think slow and steady for a complex system is not a bad thing. I just don't think there's sufficient there. So I think you're right that, you know, we need to demand an implementation plan. Mm. And that could be incremental. You know, we could have more detailed implementation plans for each aspect of the improvement plan. Um, but at the moment, we haven't been given that reassurance. And yeah. that does lead you to feel a bit cynical that perhaps that's being left for others if we have um, a change in government. But I think if not, if we just think about what we've got here and now, you know, I just hope there isn't a naivety. And I I, I can't believe that there is a naivety because I think they've unpicked the issues Mm. fairly thoroughly and well. But, you know, the way in which we which the improvement plan is telling us that many of the changes the core changes will only be actioned at the end of this year and then you know we may only start to see some change or some impact on the young people who are currently in school now by the end of 2025 and that's that's not even the impact on them it's the impact of them being involved in some form of change, i.e. some of the initiatives are not going to take shape until the end of 2025. So the way the the, uh, roadmap is laid out, it sort of talks about what happens this year and then by the end of 2025. Um, So for example, by the end of 2025, publish a significant proportion of the national standards, publish them. Mm. Whereas the equivalent sort of action for 2023 is establish the change programmes and the regional expert partnerships to test out proposals. So they're in the process of identifying nine regional expert partnerships don't have much detail on how they're being selected at the moment, but they are happening and then they will test out 
or develop some of those national standards. Right. Um, and and that actually, I mean, in a way, it kind of feels like it could be quite interesting and maybe a good move, right? Because, yeah. I mean, if you've got these, let's say, smaller areas kind of working with some of these let's say pilot programs, right. That have been consulted on, right. Because they're all based on what, um, you know, people put into the, um, consultation. So hopefully that is kind of like a test and trial and, and we'll see some improvements coming out of those. I mean, that's, that's the idea, right? Yeah. And I think a test and learn process is not a bad thing. I think the, the galling aspect of that is that we could have been testing and learning all this time that we've been, we knew what we needed. Um, to some degree we just didn't know how it was all going to fit together and how uh, I mean the fluency of this process I think worries me somewhat because if we take for example um, the funding what we see at the moment is that money isn't reaching schools in order to support the children in the way that they need it So in order to make effective change, those uh, theories that we talked about earlier, like improving mainstream provision through upskilling of teachers or support staff, that program surely needs to kick in quickly and early in order that then we can work at with a reviewed funding process that's sustainable. Now, at the moment, the way this looks is that we can't see any immediate action in terms of the upskilling of the workforce. If we make changes to the early career framework and the MPQs and further changes to CCF, which, of course, has only just been changed, the core content framework for early uh, initial teacher training we need to do those things really quickly and early so that the funding that then starts to flow into the system is better utilized then we can see where there are still real genuine gaps and there will still be real gaps no matter how skillful our workforce there are still more young people coming into the system with complex complex needs so, so the the whole picture is not pivotal on just um, addressing the inefficiencies of the system, i.e., you know, some young people maybe who could be on send support being moved into an EHCP to get funding to support their needs because the school hasn't either got the skill or the resource. You know, that escalation process of young people to uh, education healthcare plans that is an issue, but it's not the whole story. The story is still about prematurity, you know, young people um, surviving who we may not have had in our schools in the past because of medical science improvements, better identification of needs around things like autism, autism in girls, ADHD identification, you know, all those things mean that we are seeing more young people who are rightfully it requiring an education healthcare plan. Mm -hmm. But we've also got some slippage in the system that we want to address and it, and we want to change in the, the process so that young people who need support 
can receive it earlier. And we believe that that will save money for the system. Now, at the moment, I don't see the way that cycle is going to work. How do we ensure that what we what we get is the the early interventions we need in relation to this plan in order that we start to capitalize so our investment in the system starts to accrue <laughs> starts to give back and therefore we start to see the savings and we can make more efficient the funding system hmm. What I worry about at the moment is what we see as priority ahead of that is that we see things like the Delivering Better Value um, program and the other one that I can't think of. Um, Safety valve. The safety valve. Thank you, Luke. Um, Those are really funding almost sold to us panaceas when actually what they're doing is they're furnishing debt in the system so if if and I don't know the answer to this but if I could be reassured that a high percentage of that exorbitant amount of money is actually funneling its way to investment in local authority systems and processes investment in more efficient and effective processes and systems within schools and resourcing within schools if I could see that, then I might believe that actually we might get to a, a space where we can sustain a level of funding. At the moment, I think we have a magic porridge pot. You know, basically, we are constantly going to have to churn out more and more and more money. So yeah. for me, that's that's the big worry. We, I, I would like to see the cycle of change, that theory of change. Um, and how that cycle is going to lead to the outcomes at the right time. Um, because if we if we delay teacher training and development, for example, and that needs to be significant, so we need to find space in the system for that to happen really well. If we neglect that, then any funding system is going to falter and um so, so that that's my that's my concern loop really in terms of the way this is working is that I don't see how those levers are being threaded in such a way that they support each other. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think that's a very valuable overview look at the at the system um and i i can completely see what you mean if we don't have those you know that that kind of training going on for teachers now and we don't invest in that then yeah like you said all of this other investment it's just it's gonna be for nothing you're gonna keep putting it in um and it's it's not quite gonna pay off and that i guess is kind of a big worry for the for this plan, right? Because if these things, if these strategies that they've laid out in this um, improvement plan aren't going to happen for another couple of years, then that's another couple of years to wait for even just some new experts to start coming into the field. Then that's another couple of years to wait for the students who already need, have these needs, right? And 
I mean, that's just the beginning of it too. So yeah, because when you think, I mean, one of the announcements was increasing funding for education psychologists. Hmm. Well, that's good. We do need more ed psychs, but again, we we need far more than I think are, are being funded. Um, and we need their role and function to change. So we need them more agility uh, in terms of the way we use them in the system. So if we got better at identifying an escalating need in um, in relation to education healthcare plans, at the moment, an, e- an ed site spends all their time as a gatekeeper, you know, having to do those formal assessments they don't they rarely get the opportunity to use their skills and knowledge in the development process how are we going to flip that narrative how are we going to flip that 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 dilemma really because you know certainly as somebody who's got a child who who went through the system with complex needs you know i only ever had an educational psychologist to assess never to support a development plan you know they'd write the plan but then their skills were needed to support mainstream schools to really action those plans and to upskill the workforce. And, and they want they want that role. Those ed sites want that role. That's the purpose and passion they have. But they sit on this hamster wheel of assessment, assessment, assessment. Um, so how are we how, how are we recalibrating that? That's that's a really sophisticated implementation plan issue. And mm. that's the bit that I want to see. That's what we're asking to see now, Askel. We want to see, you know, how are we going to ensure that the investment we make, whether it's in that additional 300 uh, Ed Sykes or 500, that actually we're going to see the benefit of that to the system. And is, um, there, is there anything in this um, improvement plan that that is is getting there that is close you know something that you could point to as a as a maybe a beacon of hope or something that's going down that path or is it just like you said before too minimum minimalistic too bare bones I think there are actions um happening again it's the timing of those that I'm not 100% sure about so where we're seeing rapid action is for example um addressing the early career framework and the MPQs I think that work is underway as far as I'm aware um to strengthen um the permeation of those frameworks with more SEN specific and inclusive um components so that's important and that's happening which is good um the mpq send we know is under construction as well um and you know there is what we've got to be careful with there is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater it's interesting that that's the thing that's been you know invested in quickly mm-hmm. and whilst i said earlier that I thought workforce investment was key mm-hmm. I didn't I don't think there was any evidence that the Nesenko award wasn't working there was right. evidence it needed updating but not that it wasn't working so I question our 
You know, we only have so much money to play with and time and energy. Why are we putting it into things that we could build on rather than convert? Mm. So that is a worry. Saying that, the strategic leadership of the Senko is being built into that framework. That's the idea of it. That's why. So, you know, there are some positives that we hope will will really accrue from that. Hmm. I think other issues like uh, there was an announcement as part of the improvement plan for 33 new special schools. They will happen in certain regions. I want to understand better how quickly, how flexibly they can be developed. But more importantly, you know, what resource have we got in local areas that could be accessing capital investment? Now, there's some talk of that, you know, conversion funding, but we need, again, more detail on that to see where, how quickly, what's, you know, I think there's an there's a question around autonomy here as well, isn't there? Because this is a very centralised plan, government plan, you know, we are holding the strings of the puppets <laughs> as the government and we are pulling this string and this leg goes up and pulling that string and that arm goes up. That is a very resource intensive way of running things. And it, and it still has a very high degree of risk then that funding doesn't get to the right places because it requires that central oversight and, um, and um, actually, I think trust in the system and giving local areas and schools more autonomy is really important. So I have, I suppose, hope that those regional expert partnerships will capture that level of autonomy and then embrace it. And, and, and I think that's very important. So we need to look at that in great detail and say, how can we ensure that there is a capacity for local decision-making, both at those nine regional levels, but also then in those inclusion partnerships uh, locally. And I think that that's going to be really key and that could be very exciting if we could develop that aspect further. Okay. Something we didn't touch on was the um, the change in legislation, and you you raised it at the beginning, Luke, didn't you? And um, there was some concern that legislation would fundamentally change. At this point, it doesn't look as though it will. That raises the question then: How are we going to strengthen accountability? Because it looks like the government's listened to the feedback, which said actually we don't think that the the legal framework is the problem. It's an acting, it's holding to account that is the issue. So how are we going to ensure that that holding to account happens? And really the system is looking to the, the standards and the enactment of the standards for that. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were a few things I wanted to get at there, but I, I also... I'm conscious of of time here, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, um, 
Well, let's see, what haven't we covered? <laughs> Just trying There's to There's so many different things, isn't there? Yeah. An alternative provision, I, I mean, that when you asked me before, I probably should have said alternative provision when you said what is underway and what is active. Well, I haven't got an update on this to share with you, but I know that the AP pilots are underway. And that's really an important piece of the landscape. Um, and there was a lot of talk in the um in the review and in the um in the improvement plan about the role that alternative provision can play in bringing local resource together and expertise sort of hosting a hub of expertise so there's important implications in that about how we reframe the way we see alternative provision the way we use alternative provision haringey's got an excellent alternative provision yeah. um you know some really great things to share about how AP can build capacity across the schools in the local area. Um, you know, I think we've got some very exciting spaces there that we can really um, look to to build a very effective system. Key mm. to the alternative provision picture is do we get funding for places in AP that is sustained funding? And I think that that's key. Funding more broadly, you know, we need to address the AP funding issue um, so that that they're not lurching year to year, wondering how many places they're going to be able to hold. We need that consistency. Funding for schools, the notional budget is really unhelpful and needs addressing. Funding for special schools is in absolute crisis at the moment, and um, they are woefully underfunded that 10,000 place funding hasn't shifted in um, 10 years and that needs addressing so it goes back to our point at the beginning that the money isn't reaching um, our schools so that schools can improve provision they're actually looking at how they can keep hold of staff that are needed they are absolutely you know desperate in terms of staffing capacity so how does a system change where it it's it's at a you know it's at its weakest point almost and I said to you that it's very timely that we're talking today because the census data has been released in terms of education healthcare plans and it's gone over the half a million um figure a nine percent increase from 2022 so um you know the 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 need to support young people with acute and complex needs hasn't changed it's actually on the increase and i don't see how local authorities how schools are going to be able to put um, a ceiling on that you know this system can't be based on that expectation it has to be based on what is needed and how do we best facilitate it. Right, right. And yeah, of course, I mean, school funding is pretty much always an issue, right? Um, but like we said before, it seems like a lot of the um, well, first of all, that the they've identified that financial sustainability is something that they need to fix, right? Yeah. Um, but then it doesn't seem like it's going to be possible to do that, especially with the EHCP plan, EHCP plan spending, um, 
you know, hitting its highest point yet. Um, with it won't be able to to fix that without the rest of you know the, these plans being implemented, right? Um, and we don't see too much progress on that. But as you said, there is some hope. Like the regional partnerships, we'll see what they kind of uncover. Hopefully, they will be inclusive in getting the expertise from local areas, right? Um, hopefully, they'll be open to that. Uh, so bringing health on board for those is going to be really, really important, and um, and how they interface with the local areas and make use of inclusion dashboards, which is another aspect of you know um, you know of the plan changes. So that that's interesting. I think um, there are some there are some levers there that that we really if we move quickly. And we consider what a delivery plan should look like in terms of what are our priorities, what are going to be the fundamental um, foundational changes that need to happen first in order to have that ripple effect. Um, I think I think there are some, you know, there are some there are some chinks of of light that. Uh, you know, could really could really lead us into some new onto some new fertile ground, and I think, you know, just to sort of summarise what what I think is key is that that implementation plan, that overview of how and when, and then smaller localised implementation plans that really help to capture the interplay then. The, the oversight is is really still, although we've got an improvement plan, I'm not sure, as I said, that it's threaded fluently together. And that's something that I'd like to see within the implementation plan. There needs to be much greater transparency, sort of a format for regular sharing of findings across each of the stakeholder areas, and um, particularly for families to really understand how change is happening, you know, there's multiple test and learn pilots. Let's enthuse everybody with those. Let's really get those, you know, celebrated so that people will um, really jump on board and, and want to want to be involved. Um, I think they should still be looking at those easier wins. You know, the streamlining of EHCPs and the digitizing of EHCPs really could be done quickly. Uh, it's not easy. But there needs to be that sense of urgency and, and kicking that um, forward quickly. And a much greater focus and feedback on how health are going to be working with education. That's been really skirted over, I think, in the improvement plan. So that's something else we're calling for. Um, and then I think going further with investment to strengthen inclusive teaching, um, you know, is... Is it enough to look at those um, development frameworks? I think there needs to be some kind of championing that's that goes above and beyond that um, EHCP MPQ infrastructure, and that will strengthen the the. Sorry, I keep saying EHCP ECF. I, I think that will strengthen the ECF and the MPQs. You know that actually to sort of have that really heralded as the start point but not the be all and end all mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously fundamentally financial review of um 
our current funding strategy. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic uh, summary of of what we need, and I <laughs> I hope it comes. So, first of all, thank you so much for that. Any idea when when are we going to see the uh, the implementation plan? I don't know. I mean, we haven't even had that acknowledged that it's needed. But um, I think you know to give the Department for Education their due. I think they are working very hard to make this work. The the funding is like the Grim Reaper, sort of standing at our shoulder, isn't it? Um, and my worry is that that pet to parents, it looks like there's a huge amount of money going into the system. Um, and if I as was only looking at this um, as a parent, I'd be wondering why it wasn't reaching my school and my child and what failure there is from schools to meet those needs when actually the reality is it isn't reaching the school and schools are really almost trying to protect that picture because they don't want to lose they don't want parents to lose confidence and they don't want young people to lose confidence that the system can work for them yeah. um it's a really unpleasant position to be in at the moment where you know you're a magnet school um mainstream school or you're you're a, a specialist SCND school and you haven't got the funding to do what you know is needed for that child that just cannot continue. And that's why I want the implementation plan to really be confident that we can meet the goals that are articulated in this improvement plan. Okay. Well, thanks. Luke. I'm sure we could talk about this. <laughs> quite hours. Hours um, yeah, no, there, there is a lot to talk about, but really thank you for that very, um, insightful overview of it and and commentary on the plan um and of course thank you for for coming back on hep talks we really appreciate it oh it's lovely to do it thank you luke we really it's great to talk about it and reflect on it you know let's let's remain very excited and positive at the prospect because all we can do is move forward with this and um, young people need us to do that they need it more than ever <laughs> so thanks very much well thank you That was Margaret Mulholland, SEN and Inclusion Specialist at the Association of School and College Leaders, or ASCL. Margaret joined us for part three of our series, What Does It Mean to Make Schools and Classrooms Inclusive? To discuss the SEND and AP Green Paper at first, and today the SEND Improvement Plan. If you enjoyed the episode, thank you for listening. And please don't forget to subscribe and like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments or anything else you'd like to discuss, feel free to send me an email at luke.kemper at heringayeducationpartnership.co.uk. Thank you once again for joining us. I'm Luke Kemper, and you're listening to Hep Talks.